0: there. I'll read that. Uh, We'll we'll read that together and then go to the Lord in prayer. Philippians chapter 2, this is what God says. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, we are in a key moment in history. I mean, if you think about it, issues of race that are very controversial, politics, strongly held preferences even to all of, the, all of the wisdom issues associated with COVID-19, dealing with the government and with the church and with fear and with the exercise of, of, of wisdom in all of those dynamics. There, there are many, many threats to unity in the body of Christ. There are many threats to unity. Unity was actually paramount in the Lord Jesus' own thinking only hours before he died. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays to the Father, shifting from his 11 disciples, Judas has already gone out, to all of us who would come to believe in Jesus in the future. He says in John 17, I do not ask for these only, the 11 but for those who will believe in me through their word, what does Jesus pray? That they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world believes in Jesus, in part on the basis of our unity in the body. That's why Paul is going to say in Ephesians chapter four, that we are to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Disunity was a danger in the first century. You think it's a danger in the 21st century? It is. It is. Now, as we look at our text this morning, because the Christology, what, I, what I've read to you is really, it's kind of like a, a Christological poem or hymn. It, because the Christology in Philippians chapter 2 is so rich, it's probably the greatest biblical text on the Incarnation. Because the Christology is so rich and so deep in these verses, it's perhaps important for us to highlight, to zoom out, that Philippians chapter 2, and indeed a theme for the whole book, is unity in the body of Christ. In fact, just glancing at it, we won't teach and work through these verses in detail, but verses 1 to 4, just looking at Philippians 2, they contain an appeal for unity, an appeal for unity. Paul says, maintain unity, verse 2. How, how do we do that? By pursuing what? Humility. Humility in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. And I want to make this point, and so, so, so don't miss this. This is so key. These two concepts, unity and humility, they are related. They're related in this text. They're related in the mind of the Apostle Paul. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that the way to protect unity in the body of Christ, the way to cultivate unity, is by humility. It's by others-centered, humble service. Does that make sense? You tracking with what what Paul's doing there? He says that this is the way to cultivate unity in the church. That's why he says what he does in verse 3. That's why he says in verse 4, don't merely look out for yourself but for the interests of others. Humility. This is a protective agent producing the unity that Jesus uh, accomplished spiritually, producing the unity that Paul wants to see in the Philippian church. So we have an appeal for unity in the opening verses. Verse 5 to 8 was the last text, at least, that, uh, that I uh, shared with us a number of weeks ago. And that is a model, a Christ-centered model of humility. It's the humility that produces unity. And what does Jesus do? He turns to not just an example, but the premier example. And in verse 6 to 8, we see that Jesus' humility is on display by his attitude in heaven, his incarnation on earth, verse 7, and Jesus' humility in obedience unto death. And so that section leading up to our passage this morning shows a Christ-like model of the humility of Jesus. His humility uh, in attitude in heaven His incarnation on earth, verse 7, and then his obedience unto death, verse 8. But the whole saga, the whole hymn, this whole sort of Christ-centered hymn in Philippians 2, this beautiful Christ-centered poem, if you will, is... Meant to compel us towards having the same mindset ourselves. That's why Paul said in verse 5, have this mind among you. In other words, it's not merely a theology section in your Bible. It is meant to compel us towards unity and humility within the body of Christ. And now, this morning, verse 9 to 11. It follows the Son's redemptive work from the lowness of humiliation up into the stratosphere of exalted glory. Verse 9 to 11 gives the Father's response to the self humbling, the self sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 9 to 11, just looking at it, you can tell, is not self exaltation. It's not that Jesus humbled himself, waited, and then Jesus exalted himself. No, this is the Father's response to the self humbling of Jesus. And it's a powerful text that motivates us. And we're, I think, beloved, charged in this passage, the whole section, towards humility, example by our Lord, that humility that will promote unity within the body, and that humility that is so dear. To the heart and mind of God. It will never go unnoticed. It will never go unforgotten. And so let's look this morning at three elements of the exaltation of Jesus, this response to the humble Son of God by the Father. The text proclaims the Father's exaltation of Jesus from maybe three angles, we could say. And we'll look at the reason for his exaltation, the nature of his exaltation, and the purpose of his exaltation this morning. Notice the first word in verse 9. The first word in your Bible maybe is the word, therefore. Or in the NASB, we read that helpful little designation, for this reason. These are important little phrases. Uh, you look at the, the reason, the therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. And it's a causal link backwards into Jesus' display of humility. It signifies a reason for His exaltation. And so we could put it this way. The reason, number one, is the complete humility and obedience of Jesus. This is the reason for the Son's exaltation. It was His complete Humility. His complete obedience. That Christological hymn, verses 5 to 11, goes down and down and down and down in lowliness and humility. And it pushes, my friends, towards... For this reason. It pushes. It pushes towards therefore. It is as if as Kent Hughes puts it in his commentary. That the descent of humility and obedience is like the gears of a catapult. Ratcheting tighter and tighter. Being ratcheted down and down. Where you read in verse 6. Though he had equality with God he did not insist on that equality. Click. Click. He did not consider heaven's splendor a thing to be grasped. Click. He emptied himself. Click. He took on all of the frailty and lowliness of humanity. Click, 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 click. He lived an obedient life in submission to death. The life giver. Click. And he tasted the divine wrath and horrific separation From the Father with whom there was always perfect fellowship in eternity past. Click. And then... Up goes this catapult. Up and up and there's a launch. Verse 9. Therefore, do you see it in your text? For this reason, in light of this mind-boggling humility, God exalts his Son. Do you see it, friends? There's a shift. Verse 6 to 8 speaks of Jesus' own self-humbling. But now, this morning, we see the response of God the Father. And really, no panorama can be more more beautiful in how it paints the breadth and the depth of the condescension and then the height of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if we stand both before the Grand Canyon, peering into its depths, and before Mount Everest in one passage as we see the descent and then the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. And in this picture of supreme exaltation, there's a wisdom principle that is painted for us and that we are beckoned into. The principle is one that the Philippian church needed, one that we need in our day if we would have chapter 2 verse 5, the mind of Christ. You say, what's the principle? It is that God sees, he loves, he is pleased by, he will reward humility. God sees, He is pleased by, He will reward true humility. So that in Isaiah 66 too, not only does humility draw the magnetic gaze of the Father, Isaiah 66 says, this is the one on whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. But beloved, woven into the very fabric of creation in God's world, there is a wisdom principle. It's in the words of Proverbs 15.33 that humility precedes honor. Humility precedes honor. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23.12. He said, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself, what? Shall be exalted. Exalted. God sees, God will, in His timing, for His glory, give grace. He will lift up, He will reward the humble. And this this reality, this truth, is seen in in a consummate expression in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so I would ask you, before we move on, uh, what examples of humility is the Lord taking note of in your life, in your heart? The, the, the therefore, the for this reason, is there a joining with the Savior in this place of suffering, in the place of being low, in the place of being last? Friends, this is what protects unity within the body of Christ, is this kind of mindset that gives glory to God, that puts Him as first, self as last. So we see first in our text the reason for Jesus' exaltation. It's complete humility, complete obedience. Second, I want to note with you the nature of Jesus' exaltation. And we could just describe it this way. It would be supreme glory and recognition. Supreme glory and recognition. Look at verse 9 a second time. It says, Philippians 2, 9, For this reason, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. This is the glory and the recognition bestowed upon the Son. And in fact, those two words in verse 9, exalting and bestowing, those are the two key verbs. If you look in your Bible, you have those words exalting and bestowing. Those are like two ways of talking about the same single ascended Lord. Those two verbs go together. The word highly exalted um, or exalted to the highest place depending on your translation, is the Greek verb hooper youpsao or hyper-youpsao. It's a, it's a hyper-exaltation. In fact, if you wanted to sort of just translate this word, Paul basically makes up the word. It only occurs one time in the New Testament. Paul invents a word in order to basically uh, portray the, the extreme height of the exaltation of Jesus. It is a Super exaltation or a hyper exaltation. It is exaltation, friends, to the highest place. And think about this. Think about what's happening in this text. Because according to John chapter 17, Jesus already possessed a shared divine glory and fellowship from before the foundation of the world with the Father. According to Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. But... This exaltation is higher. It is higher than the formerly infinite glory that he already possessed. It's in response, it's the therefore. It's this in reward to, in response to the humility of the God man, having accomplished. The salvation of God, that salvation that was architected by the Father in eternity past, accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the God man super exaltation was not just to his former perfect and yet infinite glory, but higher, higher. The added glory of triumph over sin, the added glory of triumph over death, the added glory of faithfulness suffering under the wrath of God, willingly on the cross. And so now, as we think about this doctrine of the exaltation of Jesus, we could maybe describe it under four headings, four sort of theological aspects to this. And these are in your notes, and, and you're perhaps familiar with some of these things. But um, when we talk about this exaltation of Jesus, we're really talking about a process with multiple steps. And, and step one would be the resurrection, the resurrection, of course, this is on our hearts and minds uh, going into this next week as we celebrate Easter, but resurrection was, as you know, in the early hours of Sunday morning, the breath of those formerly lifeless lungs rushed back into the Lord Jesus' chest and that heart that was pierced by a spear beat again with resurrection life. This is the resurrection, right? Right? Chapter, uh, chapter 1 of Romans, Romans 1.4 says it this way, that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power, how? By the resurrection of the dead. So this is, the, this is the, sort of the first step, if you will, of Jesus' exaltation. Resurrection. Uh, another word that we could use to describe this glory, this super-exalted reality, is the word ascension. Ascension. So we have the resurrection, but we also have the ascension of Jesus. uh, A-S, silent C. (laughs) The ascension, okay? And the ascension of Jesus, you say, what does that mean? The ascension of Jesus is his actual physical departure from the earth. It's his physical being lifted up from the earth. Look at this with me in Acts. Keep your finger in Philippians and go backwards in your Bible, past Corinthians and Romans, to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus in Acts is interacting with his followers. They're asking, are you going to restore the kingdom? He says, number one, I'm not, that's not for you to know right now. And then he gives a theme verse in verse 8. Uh, by the way, you can underline this. this is the theme of Acts, right? The, the ripple effect of, of the Spirit having been sent from Jerusalem out into the whole early uh, world. And it says in Acts 1.8, uh, he says... Uh, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and it will be my witness both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the earth. That's exactly what we read about in the book of Acts is this expansion witness. But look at verse 9. He says, After he said these things, he was lifted up and while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they were gazing intently into the sky and while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them and they said also, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go. Guys, this is so important. We know from this text that the ascension, this is the actual taking up. 1 Timothy uh, 3.16 says he was received up in glory. This ascension, this lifting up of Jesus tells us that he's going to return in the same way. That's important. Jesus does not return as a concept in our hearts. There is a physical, visible, real, personal return of the Lord Jesus. He was taken up. He was ascended in this passage. This is an aspect of his exaltation. And can you imagine when the Lord Jesus returns to heaven, the 10,000 times 10,000 choirs receiving back her King in glory, the victory of the eternal Son of God, re-entering into the glory that had always been His since the foundation of the world, except now more, more glory from the obedience of the God-man unto death. The increased glory of super-exaltation, which brings us to a third aspect of the exaltation, and I have it starting with the letter C in your Outline, we'll use the word coronation. <laughs> coronation. If you don't like that, you can, you can write down the kingly seating of Jesus. Same, same thing, okay? So this is the, the coronation or the kingly seating. So we have Jesus' resurrection, His ascension. Third, His coronation, His seated kingship at the right hand of God the Father. The royal seating and ruling of the Son over creation, not only as creator, but now as redeemer. As creator and redeemer. Ephesians chapter 1 speaks to this. Come with me to Ephesians on your way back to Philippians. You go past the long letters of Romans and Corinthians to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 20 is speaking about the power of God at work in the exalted Christ and Ephesians 1 verse 20 says that when he raised him from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is this, this kingly seating, this coronation. Verse 21, it was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Wow. What a, what a picture, huh? What a powerful passage about the kingly seating of Jesus over all rule, above every authority, above every name, headship over everything. And yet, friends, in our text this morning, there's a, there's a fourth aspect that uh, the Apostle Paul wants to draw attention to, a fourth specific dynamic, if you will, of the exaltation of Jesus And it's... Go back to Philippians 2. We see... Remember those two key verbs in verse 9 that the Father exalted Him. What else did He do? He bestowed on Him that name. And so we might just call this fourth aspect the naming. Naming. So there is a... There's a resurrection, ascension, coronation, and naming. Verse 9 says, He bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. By the way, that verb bestow... Uh, It it contains the root word grace within it. So this is a a bestowing of grace. It's It's a gracious giving. It's a freely giving. And the Father bestowed upon Jesus the name which is above every name. A name of honor before which every knee will bow. And so we ask the question as we read this little paragraph, what's the name? Is it Emmanuel? Is it Wonderful Counselor? Prince of Peace, is it the Ancient of Days, the Door, the Good Shepherd? Jesus is called the Son of Man, He's called the Son of God, He's called the Word. What's the name? Now I raise the question because in studying this text, I do not believe that the name is Jesus. When verse 10, look at this in your Bible, when verse 10 speaks of the name of Jesus, Paul is not saying the name which is Jesus, he's saying rather the name which belongs to Jesus, a name that he does not then fully reveal until he completes his thought in verse 11 where we read that every tongue confesses Jesus is Lord. I'm going to, sub- I'm going to suggest this morning that the name is Lord. Now, how do we know? How do we know that the name is not Jesus? Well, let me just talk about this for a second. First, the name Jesus was given at his birth, not at his exaltation. Furthermore, Jesus was a name given by Mary and Joseph. Yes, it was through angelic instruction, but it was a human name, not a divine bestowal. In fact, the name Jesus in the first century was very common. Many, many people would have been named Jesus. It's not this unique name above every other in view. And I won't take you there, but it's interesting to note that 70 times in the book of Acts, and in particular Acts chapter 2, we see the close relationship and connection between Jesus as the exalted one and Jesus as Lord. You watch for that in the book of Acts. In the same way that in the operation of Jesus' incarnation, he takes on the unique title of Emmanuel, God with us. So also in the operation of his exaltation, he takes on this unique name of Lord. Watch for that in those passages. And the word Lord, kurios in Greek, now, by the way, just stay with me for a minute here because this is, going to be, this is going to be so enriching and helpful for us. The word Lord, kurios, in Greek, it can mean sir or master or even in a more sort of authority dynamic supreme one. Those are all legitimate translations of kurios, but perhaps most important for our own discussion, the word Lord, kurios, in the New Testament is the word specifically used for Yahweh, the personal name of the triune God. Now you may already be familiar with this, but in the Old Testament especially, the Hebrew word Lord occurs thousands of times. Have you guys seen this? It's not just Lord, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You've seen that, right? The Lord comes up again and again. This is the way that we are translated in the Old Testament from Hebrew into English. And it is the word, is the name, really, Yahweh. The personal name of the one true God. So when you see that in your Old Testament, capital L-O-R-D, it is the name Yahweh. But it's translated as Lord because the uh, people of Israel uh, had a specific reverence for the name of God. So, follow me, when the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, a Greek version of the Old Testament, if you will, what Greek word was used thousands and thousands of times to refer to Yahweh? Kurios, the word that Paul applies to Jesus. You see what's happening here? It's this word that's applied to Jesus. Now, let me add one more thought. Not only is Philippians 2 using the word kurios, which maybe triggers the name Yahweh, but Philippians 2 is also an allusion or a loose quotation of an Old Testament text that highlights Yahweh is who I'm talking about. And it is, maybe you have it in your study Bible or in your notes, in your copy of God's word. It is out of this text in Philippians 2 Loosely quotes out of Isaiah 45. So let's flip there. Let's look at this for a second. Isaiah 45. So go backwards in your Old Testament. Past those long books of Ezekiel, of Jeremiah. Find your way to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. And there is just exclusive language of the uh, worship and the designations of, of enthronement and Rule that belonged to Yahweh alone, just all over this chapter. But look at Isaiah 45, verse 20. Isaiah 45, verse 20 says, Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. He says, Look, these other idols, they can't save. They're wooden idols. Verse 21, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. There are no other gods, he says. And that exclusive language, it just permeates The book of Isaiah, and particularly in these later chapters, it says in verse 5, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. There is no other. No one besides me. No other God. Verse 6, I am the Lord. Look at verse 22. He goes on. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return Uh, To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Guys, this is the text that Paul has in his mind as he is quoting and applying, granted, on purpose, to Jesus, right? he, He takes this text, which is exclusive in its worship and in its glory, to Yahweh alone, and he applies it to Jesus. And we could just multiply this. It says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name, as if, Mine and no one else's, <laughs> right? Isaiah 42.8. Isaiah 43.11, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 44.6, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. He cannot make it any clearer in Isaiah. Yahweh alone, the Lord alone receives worship. And beloved, fully aware of this context, Paul applies this exclusive name to Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. Not because at the exaltation he becomes Yahweh, or that before this royal enthronement he wasn't formerly Yahweh in his eternal co-equal personhood, but because now as the obedient, exalted God-man, he would be declared and confessed as Yahweh with worship as never before. So we've seen the reason, the reason for the exaltation, complete humility, complete obedience. We've seen the nature of his exaltation, supreme glory and recognition. Let's consider thirdly the purpose of his exaltation. And we could just put it this way, friends. The purpose of this supreme hyper exaltation, the super exaltation of Jesus, the purpose is universal submission, universal submission. Look at verse 10. Go back with me in your New Testament to Philippians. This is so key. It says in verse 10, so that. Oh, that's important. That's the purpose. That's the reason. This is the result of the son's humble obedience followed by exaltation. It is so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, friends, I'm going to suggest to you that verse 10 reads the following way. That phrase, at the name of Jesus, is not the name which is Jesus, but the name which belongs to Jesus, which Paul identifies, verse 11 Lord, a name above every name, a name that the living God shares with no other. But notice the universal submission, verse 10. Every knee. Should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's guys. That's all the knees. <laughs> okay. And we we could talk about uh, we could talk about how, you know the stratification of you know all the beings, angelic and human, uh, in in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and certainly uh, they're all included in this. But the point is not so much the the strata of created beings, but the point is totality. Every knee, everywhere. Universal submission, total submission, no exceptions. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, pauper or king, um, presidents, they'll all confess. And that means every one of us in this room, every one of us will bend the knee. Whether you love Jesus or hate Jesus, doesn't matter. You will bow before Him. Whether someone trusts Jesus or mocks Jesus, that's not the issue. Because all creation, friends, will bow. Will bow before her maker in submission, before the Lord Jesus Christ. The only question is, when? When when did you personally bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ? Think about that. When did you submit your will to his hand of gracious lordship? To his hand of grace? I would just encourage you, you young people especially, have you submitted yourself to the Lord Jesus? Have you trusted in Him? Have you turned from yourself, from your self-will, from your self-righteousness, and acknowledged Him as Lord of your life personally? I would just urge you, bow your knee. Bow your knee today. Cast your soul on Him now while His heart is extended to you in endless compassion and kindness and willingness to forgive. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, All who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So come, come to the Lord. What stops you? What stops you? Is it, is it your pride? Don't let unbelief live in your heart. Jesus welcomes all to come. And one day, every knee will go down. One day, every knee will go down And every tongue is lifted up to confess the Lord Jesus. Verse 11 says, confessing Him as Lord. The word confess means to agree. To say the same thing as. It means to agree with God. We sometimes talk about confession of sin, calling the spade a spade, and that's helpful. First John 1 John nine talks about that. We confess our sins. In this passage, we are agreeing with God's declaration of the exalted character and uh, enthronement of His Son over all things. It's to agree with what the Father has designated, what the Father has said with His declaration And really, this confession was the first great creed of the early church. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a confession. That's a saving confession of Jesus' deity, of Jesus' lordship, of Jesus' authority in our lives personally. And it's important because in the Roman world, when Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church in Rome, there was only one Lord. His name was Caesar, right? To to acknowledge even another Lord was treason. It was punishable by death. And in a similar kind of way, no unconverted Jew would ever confess Jesus as Lord because that would be seen as blasphemous. So this is an early confession of faith the lordship of Jesus, confessing Jesus as Lord, but it was also a litmus test that only the truly committed, only the truly transformed, only the truly converted believer would pass. And so I ask you this morning, friend, is this the confession of your heart? That Jesus is Lord. A day is coming when every person, not just every believer, but every person, every tongue, no matter the language, no matter the dialect, no matter the historical era of history, all will confess his lordship. Caiaphas, that wicked high priest who ordered our Lord's execution, he will confess Jesus is Yahweh. Hitler, Hitler will confess that Jesus is Yahweh. Joseph Stalin, that Communist mass murder who even in his dying breath raised a closed fist up to God heart as cold as steel Joseph Stalin will confess Jesus is Yahweh Muhammad will confess Jesus is Yahweh Charles Darwin will confess Jesus is Yahweh and every arrogant Atheist and mocker and scoffer, wise in his own eyes now, today, will one day confess on bended knee the absolute, unrivaled, exclusive sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is heavy, isn't it? You say, is this a a universal confession leading to a universal salvation? Like we just wait long enough and everyone eventually confesses Jesus and is saved. No, sadly, but importantly, if a person waits until they are forced to bow, God's mercy and God's grace will already be forfeit. There will be on that day both bended knees of already adoring worship, the happily the happy declaration of hearts already bowed, already submitted, already repentant, already worshipful. And there will also be bended knees and confessing tongues in resentful disdain to a sovereign power that can no longer be resisted. And so, in agreeing with the Father's declaration, this universal confession is what? Verse 11. It's to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we wrap up and think about maybe some application or conclusion from this just, I mean, we really are gazing at this Mount Everest sort of reality of the the hyper, super exaltation of the Lord Jesus. But remember what we said earlier. It's not merely a section on systematic theology, which is mind-blowing because it's one of the most profound Christology passages in the New Testament. But Paul wants Paul wants this passage to sink into our lives to grip us, to motivate us towards humility ourselves, towards uh, unity and humility within our own church family and so just a few applications in closing number one, we should trust that God loves humility, that God honors humility, that he rejoices in this he, Friends, true humility, it pleases the Lord. It will never be overlooked. It will never be forgotten. It's true. We don't have to look out for self. We don't have to protect self. We don't have to promote self. Why? Because God knows. God sees. God rejoices. It brings joy to his heart. When we put ourselves last, when we serve one another, when we're committed to unity, when we are exercising humility. So, in light of what we've seen this morning, think about it. How can we insist on our own way, right? How can we judge others in self righteousness? How can we hold a grudge against a spouse or against another brother or sister in the body of Christ? How can we continue to seek glory from men? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord that He loves humility, that He will honor it. Second, actively cultivate unity and service within this body. Like, you look around at the people in this room. The the weird people on the other side of the room. How do we we, we cultivate? We need to actively cultivate unity like here, within this church family, within this body. Right? Because we're called to a gospel-driven kind of humility in this text, which was needed in Philippi, but is this needed in the 21st century at UBC? It is. Of course it is. So resolve to be a promoter of unity. Don't just be neutral on this issue. Don't just kind of come and go. Be actively committed to promoting unity, to protecting unity for the glory of Jesus in Pocatello. You say, well, what does my part look like in this? Well, you can, you can do this in a lot of ways, friends. You can promote unity by practicing the one another commands. I love those, those sections of scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5 calls us to encourage one another. Um, Colossians three 3.13 says to bear with one another. Romans 12.10, it's right there in your bulletin in the, uh, in the meal ministry. Be devoted to one another. And so we can cultivate unity that way. We can cultivate unity by resisting bitterness, Bitterness, if you're unfamiliar, is that unresolved kind of brooding conscious anger. I was talking to a young man a few years ago who was going on and on about how he wasn't bitter at this other person in the body who he refused to talk to or be in the same room as. And that's that's not acceptable. We can't live that way, right? We've got to fight bitterness. Here's the question. Are you going to get hurt at some point and tempted towards bitterness? Of course you are. Of course that's going to happen. And so, but we've got to make the choice to not let it turn into bitterness. We want to make the choice to be peacemakers, right? So, so we're going to have conflict. We're going to have conflict even within a church family. But the question is, how do we deal with it? Do we, do we love the example and the model of Jesus? Are we committed to it, committed to one another that we are promoters of unity, promoters of humility within the body? We can't always make things right, but we can always try. We can always go to the person. If, if you know someone has an issue with you in this room or within this church, or if you have an issue with someone, we, we, try to go. Try to go and, and, uh, and, and make it right. Give them a call, you know. Lastly, thirdly, I just want to say what uh, is probably obvious to all of us in light of this text, and that is that we must bow. We must bow before the Lordship of Jesus. Friends, only those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, can look towards this future day of universal bowing, universal confession. Only those who are saved by His grace can look towards that day with hope and with anticipation and with joy. And so bend the knee if you have not. Mark this, if, you are, if you're outside of Christ, mark this as a moment of reckoning. You know that this is coming. Come to the Lord to receive His forgiveness, His love, His kindness, His receiving of you upon the confession of your sin, the turning from your sin and turning to Him, to His kindness as a promise that He will make good on. We must confess the full deity, the lordship, the authority of Christ. Let's pray.